I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Dick Scobie, who was the executive director of the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee from 1972 to 1998. Under his direction, the UUSC defended human rights and promoted humane solutions to social problems worldwide, from war zones in Central America, Africa, and Asia, to America's broken systems of criminal justice and child welfare. His memoir, To Advance Justice, published in 2005, provides a detailed account of his 27 years of leadership of the UUSC. So Dick Scobie, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. So I wanna just, uh, before we start, or as we start, I just wanna read from the very beginning of your book, from the preface. You said, without UUSC, I pondered, I would not have fallen down that flight of stairs in Bombay and learned firsthand the noises, smells, and routines of an Indian hospital. Without UUSC, I probably wouldn't have spent the night in a solitary confinement cell in Massachusetts's Walpole Prison. Without UUSC, I wouldn't have been detained for 16 hours by the Philippine Army in the forest of southern Luzon. Without UUSC, I wouldn't have sat in the firelight with groups of Eritrean fighters singing freedom songs while Ethiopian tracer bullets streaked overhead. Without UUSC, I wouldn't have met at midnight with Salvadoran guerrillas listening by kerosene lamp to the distant explosions while they spoke of their hopes for a better future. Without UUSC, I would never have met Archbishop Oscar Romero, the Dalai Lama, or Oscar Arias, or traveled with Rigoberto Menchu. I really got the sense that your work was not for the faint of heart. Yes, at times it was quite an adventure. I don't know if you have to be fearless or, or just uh, somehow uh, ignoring one's fears or maybe not realizing how dangerous it would be in getting started. Heedless or unimaginative, I suppose. So let's begin with uh, who are the Unitarian Universalists, also known as the UUs? Just briefly, I think it would be helpful for anyone who's not familiar. The Unitarian Universalists uh, are, are themselves a merger of two separate denominations uh, in the very early 60s that recognized that they had more in common than they uh, had in the way of divisions. So they, they merged. They really came out of a, a part of the, the evolution from Puritan Christianity uh, in the New World to uh, one that, that began to question the orthodoxies of Protestantism and put more emphasis on the notion of one God rather than a trinity. And, and uh, gradually uh, they be, have become a very, uh, let's say, religious humanist movement that is uh, not creedal in any respect, but really uh, uh, embraces a, a collective search for truth that is constantly evolving and changing. They have a very strong social ethic that uh, I think emerges out of the Enlightenment uh, with an emphasis on individual freedom of conscience. And their, their principles uh, emphasize uh, a yearning for and a seeking for, uh, of a, a more just world, uh, justice and equity and the use of democratic process in human relations. If I could just throw in a couple of details here, uh, my understanding is that the, it's the Unitarians who rejected the divinity of Jesus, that there was only one God, but the Universalists, which was a totally separate denomination until 1961, uh, the Universalism meant that everyone eventually gets salvation, everyone gets into heaven, it's, and there's no hellfire and damnation for the rest. That's correct, so, yeah. So, that's, so there's a kind of kindness in the, in the theology. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that the uh, social justice issue of the day, you know, back in the early 19th century, of course, was slavery. And so they were among the earliest, I guess, religious groups to oppose slavery. Correct. And more recently, they have, in the 80s, especially the mobilization around the, the nuclear-free uh, zone and uh, anti-nuclear weapons, uh, they, they began to identify themselves as a peace church. Uh, along with the Quakers and the Mennonites. And it's a very small denomination. My understanding is that there's only 150,000 UUs in the U.S. and 800,000 worldwide. 
it's not as small as the Quakers, which is, I think, uh, another three times smaller in the U.S., but it's really quite a small denomination with a lot of impact through the USC and, and your work. I also wanted to just mention for our listeners that the reason why I know you is through my wife, Leora Zeitland, who was the director of public uh, publications and then public affairs uh, for six years, starting almost exactly when she and I first became involved in 1985 and ending when we moved from Boston to Las Cruces. So it's a kind of significant in, in my own personal history. Some of the stories that we'll be talking about, I had also heard from her, but of course that was not quite as firsthand as, as your uh, account will be. Well, it was, a, it was a golden era, especially because she was a wonderful staffer and I regretted to see her go. So what, what personal background in social justice issues did you bring to your role as the director of UUSC? And was, what did you have uh, in your background before becoming the uh, executive director? Even in college, I was very uh, uh, troubled by the situation of racial relations and, and, and uh, discrimination against blacks. And I learned uh, to my uh, chagrin that uh, after, after pledging uh, a fraternity, that, uh, which was a national fraternity, that they had a, a gentleman's agreement not to pledge black brothers. And that disturbed me and a number of my friends who were also members of the fraternity to the point where we led a, a movement to disaffiliate with the national. We tore up our charter and, and became a local fraternity. So that was really my first experience with social action on a, an issue of, of justice, uh, social justice. Later on in, in the civil rights movement, I was very involved in, in that movement and uh, in the Boston area. Professionally during that time, uh, probably my, my most important work was with the Boston Housing Authority, where I headed up a unit that was responsible in helping them desegregate their housing program, which uh, even in the mid-60s still had eight all-white projects frequently uh, adjacent to all black projects. So it was a clearly segregated by policy. That was the beginning of the movement. It was, it was before the fair housing legislation. Uh, so uh, it, was, uh, it was a tough job that involved a lot of persuasion and a lot of political pressure to bring about change. So that was an important part of my work. And then eventually you earned a doctoral degree at, at Brandeis University and an advanced social work degree. That's actually where I went to school also, though I finished my undergraduate's degree, I think, uh, a few years after you left. But that was a, it was a very politically active place when you were there. Uh, not so when I was there in the late 70s. It was after the, just after the Vietnam War and all the political activism had evaporated very quickly. Uh, but at that time, it was really one of the most, uh, I guess, politically charged campuses, I think, in the country. Well, I was there. Um, the Vietnam War was raging. And shortly after the, the, Kent, the Kent State killings, there was a national strike of university students all across the country. Uh, 500 campuses were ba basically shut down in protest. And the, uh, there was a national strike center at Brandeis. Um, I think the sociology department there was kind of taking the lead with their access to computers and important uh, center, center for communications during that period. So yeah, it was, it was a time uh, where social change, the spirit of change was sweeping the country. It was a very exciting time, an odd time to be studying social planning because it was a time where people were really throwing the whole book out the window and, and um, looking for ever more radical solutions to very naughty problems. Right, but I get the sense from your approach to problems that you really want to understand the full complexity of all the issues uh, rather than taking, uh, you know, staking out one side and, and uh, seeing everything filtered through that lens. And when you first took the reins of UUSC, I got the sense from your book that 
while it was a laudatory organization, it was not doing very effective work, and you really kind of changed the direction. That intellectually, that, oh, that was a very challenging and but fascinating process because it's very unusual uh, opportunity to have um, suddenly find yourself the director of an organization that had a very uh, glorious and storied past, uh, having begun as a, an anti-fascist uh, response to um, the encroachment of the Nazis into Czechoslovakia, where there were a lot of Unitarians. Um, and uh, the, the first mission of the organization had been to uh, help people escape from uh, Nazi-held territory. And uh, many of those were intellectual, uh, as they called them at the time, culture bearers. Many of them were Jews uh, who were facing uh, even even more difficult problems in the unfolding or over there. The uh, organization was uh, very, very highly uh, respected, but had really fallen into disrepair and lots of internal turmoil over the, its direction and, and purpose. And I, th- I thought this was an opportunity to kind of re- restate or say reformulate the mission and to make it more focused on issues that would emerge out of the, the social ethic of Unitarian Universalism. And I focused at the time, gotten with a lot of dialogue with the board at the time, re-articulated a vision that would focus us on uh, expanding uh, justice by uh, addressing problems of of oppression. And this would be oppression that was uh, political or civil or sometimes cultural oppression, such as is is faced by racial minorities or, or women. And the board gave me full support in, in moving the program in that direction. And so that gave us uh, an, uh, an opportunity to, to draw back from a lot of the sort of general and more traditional charitable programs and uh, in, in order to move into activities that hopefully could actually bring about social change. And so that, that having been stated, the next challenge was to find particular projects that would, would bring about that kind of a result. And as a very small organization, that, that meant finding a very challenging problem of, of finding opportunities in which an organization of our, of our scale occupying the, the social space that we occupied could have an impact. One of the phrases that comes up early in the book is drop in the bucket. You recognize that the resources were drop in the bucket, but you didn't want the impact to be a drop in the bucket. Correct. One, one of a board, the board members once came up with a metaphor that I found was useful. He said that, that like as in, in aviation, the service community needed to find opportunities in which it could be a kind of trim tab. The, the trim tab is a, a tiny lever uh, or a flap in the ailerons of a large aircraft that that somehow gives gives the aileron a, the needed leverage to operate in the face of tremendous uh, opposing uh, winds. And uh, if we could become in certain that there were opportunities for an organization to to find that that strategic pressure point uh, in which they could make a difference. And that's what we uh, we tried to do. It's, not, it's a nice idea in, in the abstract, but finding particular opportunities where it was possible was, was challenging. One of the things I think of the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee as being a leader in is, is figuring out what stance to take toward the people being helped, whether nationally or internationally, how to avoid the arrogance of being the great white hope, for instance, how to help without compromising the dignity of those being helped. So how did you reorient the strategies to, to accomplish that? Well, one thing we did was we decided that in our, in our international, actually in our international and much of our uh, work in the United States, that we would operate by not, not by having staff actually out doing the work or att- attempting to, to move, move in, to parachute into a, 
uh, situation and and be the be the instruments of change, but rather to identify local leaders or local organizations that we could give support to. That that meant a, a lot of time spent selecting groups that seemed to be playing in their own societies. It would be a a role that, if given support, could bring about uh, some important important change uh, in in the context of, of their own their own world, their own a particular uh, situation. So, to use an automotive metaphor, rather than. Uh offering to replace the engine, you're just going to push and give a little help to get a jump start. Yeah, yeah, because everywhere you go, there are brilliant and wonderful and courageous people. And sometimes, especially overseas, where the power of the U.S. dollar can amplify the amount of, of outcome you can have with a minimum investment, uh, $5,000 in El Salvador made a you can make a big a big difference in in El Salvador, whereas in Los Angeles, five thousand dollars would be bus fare for <laughs> for your staff for a few months, but not, not anything that would make a difference. We look for those sorts of opportunities. So, how did you engage the members of the Unitarian Universalist churches? to become involved in social justice work? Because my understanding is it's not that high a percentage, or at least it wasn't. Um, so how do you go about that? And then there was a second question that maybe that will come up later or you can answer it now. The tensions between the the UUSC, the service committee arm, and the UUA, the, the overall uh, church wing, not always being totally in agreement with each other. How independent should the service committee be in their goal setting? versus following the wishes of the membership. It seems like that's a very tricky kind of question. It was a very tricky kind of problem. Um, we uh, we did have a board of directors, and they had the legal responsibility uh, and authority to uh, steer the organization and make policy decisions. But we knew that uh, we were dependent for financial support, from largely from uh, people who were... Uh, supporting us because they were Unitarian Universalists. Catholics had their Catholic Relief Service, and Quakers had their American Friends Service Committee, and and well, we were we were the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, so we were their their arm facing uh, all the myriad problems of the world. So we could not be heedless of where where their thinking was, and we could to some extent by educating them to some of the the problems that we were that we were seeing in our travels in uh, around the world and our analysis and and the coalitions were that we were participating in our analysis of uh, policy problems in the United States around social social justice issues we could build a, a constituency that was informed by informing them and so that was where um, that was where our Department of Publications and Public Policy uh, became a, an increasingly important part of, of the tools that we had. Uh, we also had a, a volunteer service that um, uh, we had in individual representatives that would volunteer to represent the service committee and its interest in their local congregations. So we had uh, hundreds of, um, of volunteers that we would uh, organize and had a, a network and with leader, a structure of leadership that we trained to be our emissaries uh, in, uh, at the local church level to keep people informed about what we were doing, what, what we were thinking, and, and what the issues were that we were trying to raise up. Uh, sometimes it was... Uh, it was an easy uh, thing because this is a, a congregation, a, a body of, pe- of people who are socially liberal and politically active. Uh, when you, you go to the average community, the, the, the local UU church is very frequently the place where you'll find most of the, the leaders of what's happening in that town on things like affordable housing or criminal justice reform, 
a lot of natural activists there. So at this point, let's talk about some specific issues that were timely then and are still timely now. And those are um, criminal justice reform and the uh, justice uh, issues in Central America. So I guess starting with the first one, and I'd like to talk about not only what you did then, but also what your reflections are about what's happening now, given how similar the issues are, unfortunately. And particularly with criminal justice issues in the United States, it seems that, and, and you, you can speak to this in more detail, that the UUSC was involved in those issues before it was really on, on the map very in a, in a strong way, before it was really in, in the central focus of the, of the country, whereas it's much more so now, and may, maybe something is finally happening. So anyway, let, let's talk about that. So, so 40 plus years ago, criminal justice reform, you, there were a whole bunch of issues that sound so contemporary. Yeah, yes, indeed. We got into uh, criminal justice uh, originally without a focus within that general topic, but because we knew that UUs, Unitarian Universalists nationally, uh, there's a lot of lawyers that are UUs. There are a lot of people who care about things like how the court systems work and how uh, what the accountability of the police are. And and, and so we, we started just trying to work with local communities and, and to develop small UUSC uh, units, we call them, that would... Uh, get engaged with things like court watching or criminal justice uh, issues, especially uh, the whole the whole area of incarceration and, and death penalty. And at first it looked like we might focus a lot on death, death penalty, but the Supreme Court really, really ended that as a live issue when it determined uh, that, that it was possible to, to go forward with death penalty at the state level, and a young lawyer who who was the first staffer uh, that I brought on in this area did a, a survey of wh- where the opportunities might be for an organization like us. And he's, I remember uh, him saying, death penalty as an issue for us that we can do anything with is really a dead. But the emerging one, from his perspective, was the growth of, of the jails and prisons. And out of that concern came a lot of networking because there were other people also around the, the country who were concerned about the gradual growing of, of the numbers of, of people who were, were in prison. Looking back, it was a small number. There were like 200,000 people world, uh, nationwide who were uh, incarcerated. Today, it's over two and a half million. But we became part of a coalition of groups that were calling for a, a national moratorium on prison construction until the nation and local states and communities could do a systemic review of where incarceration should fit in the larger question of criminal justice. Yeah, a couple of things. One is, uh, I remember Leora telling me about the poster on the wall at the, at the USC office in, in, at that time in the Boston Common. What color are Americans' prisons? And it was a map of the United States where if it was uh, whatever the predominant minority was in that area, that's what the color of the prison population was. So, you know, whether it was African-American or, or Hispanic or Native American. So that was one, you know, really big uh, area. And and the other uh, thought I was uh, that came to mind is the, my understanding of the position of the USC is, is that there really should be studies and, and the studies that were already done should be heeded about how effective incarceration is for reducing crime and, and for also to compare the incarceration practices here compared to Europe, for instance, that ours were much, much longer and that we didn't seem to make much of a distinction between violent and nonviolent crime in terms of incarceration. That's right. In order to, in order to make some headway on this, we had to connect and coalesce with other organizations nationally. We had a, an advisory committee that included some of the, the major voices for, for prison reform. 
in in the country. We um, we were never an abolitionist group, although sometimes we were disparaged by people who would characterize our program as wanting to abolish prisons. We thought we, that society does have some very violent offenders that need to be incarcerated. The national moratorium idea came originally from President Nixon's advisory committee on corrections. And we kept trying to remind our critics uh, of that, people who were trying to argue that we were a radical fringe organization. We, we saw that this, this situation was escalating uh, uh, in different parts of the country. So we, for a while, had, had offices, staffed offices in San Francisco, uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, Boston and, uh, and Atlanta, all working on on this and challenging local and federal proposals for new for new prisons. Obviously, we were we were swimming against the tide. We did, we did this work for twelve years, and by the time we left, it was pro- approaching two million people behind bars. The so-called war on drugs was an accelerant to this process. The politicians who who discovered that. Crime is, and perceptions of crime could be used politically uh, to advance their careers. And so the get tough on criminals became the order of the day. So people, it was raining, it was raining jails in California, Florida, all around the country. We probably had our most uh, impact on the Bureau of Prisons in that we we're able to focus a lot of effort and uh, testimony in Congress and uh, mobilization against particular prison proposals to the point where they were complaining about that moratorium group that was interfering with the, the momentum of their construction program. Were prisons being uh, privatized at that point, too? Not while we were doing that. That came later. That came later. But the, you mentioned the the poster, "What Color Are American Prisons?" That was that was a, a outcome of research that our Washington office was doing at the time, uh, with whatever national data could, they could assemble. There was very little in the way of nationally coordinated database. It took a lot of just uh, piecing together of individual reports from from different states, state governments in order to come up with, with the data. It was uh, really an amazingly decentralized uh, process. The discriminatory use of incarceration became so glaringly apparent to us uh, and that we that poster, I think, was one of our most effective tools in educating people to this issue, where black people were the, the predominant minority they were the people who were imprisoned uh, in the Northwest, where it's Native Americans. They were the ones who predominated. And if my statistics are correct, I think something like 25% of African-American males have have been in prison at one time or other. I certainly been uh, under the supervision of, of law enforcement. Uh, some, some. Right. So not necessarily in prison, but maybe probation or... I think the uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, book, the uh, the new Jim Crow uh, about the mass incarceration, just shows uh, vividly uh, how how bad it has gotten in, in America. We actually, right now, there has been a growing realization. I had a, a related question, not incarceration, but racial justice issues. The Boston busing crisis was happening during your tenure as well, right? Yes, indeed. 1974. People were throwing stones and smashing bus windows of school children. And one of the greatest things I think that was uh, organized is that uh, people would accompany the, the buses, right, in, in, in cars. Accompaniment is, is an important uh, and powerful tool uh, when things are really uh, going to pieces. That whole uh, episode was just a, a, a tragedy for the, for the city. And we still get uh, repercussions uh, from the bitterness that came out of it on both sides, on all sides. But just uh, being able to observe, this has been a, a tool for, for people in human rights organizations uh, 
overseas too. The service committee has has sent people as observers to situations of, as as election observers and and accompanies through the years to provide some, some cover of safety. And sometimes all you can do is bear witness. You know, not, not necessarily be able to stop things, but at least have justice after the fact. And knowing that the world is watching sometimes can lead people to be a little more temperate. So before we move on to the next topic, I'd like to hear about your reflections about what's happening now in the uh, in prison reform uh, issues and racial justice issues. I mean, there's, there's so much that's similar, and yet there's also, uh, it seems that the moment is arriving, would you say, or are you optimistic? Uh, well, it's, it's hard to be optimistic when Americans deal with criminal justice issues because we, we're, we're not very good at assessing risk uh, in general. Just like uh, in, in, this, in the current situation in New York where people are up, up in arms about um, the uptick in homicide but uh, have so easily and quickly forgotten what it was like in the 90s, that the current uh, criminal activity in, in New York City is down by like 80% since in the last 30 years. And yet uh, every uptick is an op- opportunity for the people who, who want to use that as leverage to to increase the role of law enforcement and, and the use of incarceration. It's hard to be optimistic, but the, the judiciary has, I think, in recent years, become more and more skeptical of the utility of incarceration. And they have, I think, recognized the negative impact of things like mandatory sentencing, which was was an idea that was supposed to bring greater fairness by avoiding the the tremendous variations in, in sentences for similar offenses. Um, but the result was that everybody got the book thrown at them for offenses that in other say, European developed countries uh, would would get uh, just a few months. Here they would they would get several years or or even life. Uh, so I think the judges more and more are, have opposed this. Certain uh, governments have reformed their sentencing policies to, to roll this back. So there was a point when all of the people who were under kind of different kinds of incarceration at um, in jails, prisons, federal and state, and probation and parole were probably over three million. And that has dropped down to about two and a half. There has been a significant decrease of incarceration, but it's still enormous. And we're still the the leading incarcerator in the world on on a per capita basis, more than China, more than Russia. It's it's quite quite amazing. We're going to move on now to talking about Central America. Again, another topic that's very much in the news in the, recently, but it was even more in the news, I think, back in the 80s during uh, the Reagan administration. So one thing that is, was so impressive, and I'd like to hear more about that uh, from you, is just how careful UUSC was to bring awareness to what was going on from all sides. It was not not one slanted perspective, but a really comprehensive perspective bringing uh, congressmen and senators to meet with the key players and also the uh, general population. It was really, I think, probably unique at its time, wasn't it? Um, I think so. I, most most delegations, human rights uh, delegations, uh, were either created by and conducted by uh, the government, in which case they, they would focus on uh, the government apparatus and local dignitaries and presidents and generals. And most of them that were being organized by, say, human rights organizations uh, were, were often so identified with, with the solidarity movements and the opposition movements that their delegations would only be talking to the, the radical organizers or the people who were involved in the guerrilla islands uh, or people who had been victimized by their government. 
So we tried to do both. But going back a little bit, we were already involved in Central America in supporting small groups that were doing community development at the local level in rural areas with farmers, campesinos, who uh, had traditionally very little insight or knowledge of what the reasons for their situation, which is usually a very oppressed situation. They had few opportunities to understand how it is things had gotten the way they were. And with the ferment in the Catholic Church during those years and the emergence of what was called liberation theology, some of the uh, Catholic institutions, uh, especially the universities, were beginning to embrace, embrace a different view of the role of the church and, and in which the church had traditionally um, given a pre-blanket pre support to, uh, to government and to the army and the more conservative elements in fairly feudally organized uh, societies in Guatemala and Nicaragua and El Salvador. With liberation theology, that there was a, a new wind blowing. So the service committee identified some people, mainly through Marinol and Jesuit contacts, and started to give uh, small grants to programs that were sending community organizers out into the field to help people mobilize around their particular realities and, and develop a sense of, of common strength, uh, developing cooperatives and addressing problems of need for agricultural reform and and they, they ran began to run run right up against the repressive power of the local uh, police and national guard and so the these societies that had been brutally repressive societies began to be challenged by the, these growing grassroots organizations that were being encouraged now for the first time by the more progressive members of their own religious church. And so it may seem odd that the Unitarian Universalists are down there supporting what are essentially uh, liberal Catholic action programs, but we saw that what their objectives were were completely consistent with what our concerns were about individual freedom and, and a more equitable society and the, the terrible plight that the, uh, especially the rural poor were, were facing in these societies. In El Salvador, we gave a, a grant to the Justice and Peace Commission of the Archdiocese of San Salvador, which was uh, producing a little newsletter. It was called Justicia y Paz, Justice and Peace. And it was a reflection of this new perspective that we had come out of liberation theology and was trying to inform local farmers. And it was almost a graphic novel, comic book kind of format for semi-illiterate people uh, to un begin to understand that they had basic human rights and they, they had some legitimate concerns about how they were being treated by their own government. And this was with the blessing of very often the local priests and people who had become enlivened by the ferment in the, in, in the church. And, and there was a concomitant uh, political development that was being pushed largely by the group called Catholic Action, which was a Christian Democrat kind of operation. So I'd say center left in in our political language, but they were they were running an alternative candidate to the military candidate who had been previous president, and they developed a block of a coalition of uh, the opposition organizations that were political organizations, and they. Um, got the vote out, and they are very confident that they won the vote, but it was stolen by the military. In the wake of that, there was a massive protest 
that was then put down with massive uh, military force, and hundreds of people were killed. The Archbishop of El Salvador, uh, Oscar Romero, uh, asked us to come down uh, because we were this small organization that had given them a grant to do some of their work. And we met with him, and this was 1977, and said, uh, Archbishop Monsignor, how, how can we help? And he says, we're, what, what's happening here, nobody nobody knows. It's like it's being, it's, it's hidden. And people in America don't have any idea where El Salvador is, much less what's, what's being done to us. And the, the extent of the repression, help us, help us inform them. And so we came back. I, I was there, and the director of international programs, John McAward, was there to try to decide what, what we can possibly do to best accomplish this, to inform the American people what's happening. We came upon this idea of uh, addressing the, the Congress. There was a congressman who had announced hearings on what was happening in Central America. We uh, uh, presented uh, some uh, data uh, from our visit to El Salvador and and described what we had seen. And we, we, we had a very vivid view of, of what was happening. In fact, one of the, one of the people that we would, were scheduled to meet with was assassinated right uh, one block from our hotel uh, while we were while we were waiting to to go see him the next day, um, this was a young priest who uh, had dared to give the com- give communion to uh, people who were in the protest before the, the the repression of the those demonstrations. So we we got this idea only get a, a one member of Congress to get on an airplane and go down with us to see what what was happening and to to meet with the government, to meet with the ambassador, and to, but, but to also meet with the people out in the field and who, who were experiencing this and uh, who had witnessed some of the savagery of the National Guard. And so Father Drynan was the first one that we got. He was a congressman from the Newton uh, area uh, of uh, Massachusetts. He was also a Jesuit, and the uh, the death squads in El Salvador were beginning to kill Jesuits. So he had the concerns of a congressman and also the concerns of a clergyman whose, whose brothers were being killed. Um, and he went down, and, um, with his, and he came back to Congress and told other members of Congress about what, what an electrifying experience it had been and what a great job we did. Uh, and providing him with this experience. And you managed to make contacts with people from all sides of the conflict. That's the really amazing thing, because one would think that USC would be thought of as a left-leaning organization, and therefore the more right-wing forces in El Salvador and elsewhere would be reluctant to meet. How was that accomplished? Well, if you can get a member of Congress to come with you, immediately you have a a level of, of legitimacy that we alone would not have had if we had just gathered together a few professors or people with good reputations. Um, we would not have had uh, the kind of entree that we had. But as soon as you have a member of Congress, you get to see Any, anyone. <laughs> anyway, anyone you want to see. In fact, one of the first problems you have to deal with is that when the State Department realizes that a member of Congress is going down there, they want to capture him, and they want to take over the itinerary, and they tried very hard to do that, and we had to prepare the congressperson for this and to, to resist that, because we had a whole list. Yes, we wanted them to see the, the, the ambassador and all the various people in the in the government that we wanted to see the, the president if possible and very often we did get to see the president and uh, the generals and but we also wanted to see the the union organizers and the farm co-op people and and people whose family members had been murdered yeah people who had witnessed assassinations 
And so we would give them a, this completely balanced feast. So once in a while, somebody who's criticizing will say, oh, these were junkets. They were not junkets. They were a full week of dawn to well after dusk. There are quite a few pages in your book uh, talking about the rift that happened between you and John McAward. You were very gentle in the way you wrote it, and I, I think it's probably uh, consonant with your style of, of being a very you know kind and balanced person. But it, it's sounded from the from the kind of between the lines that he really was going off in a different direction. Well, that, actually, you do say that, <laughs> um, but that he. I guess was pushing against the idea that UUSC was sympathetic toward the, for instance, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, and that therefore the other side had to be represented more in these tour in these uh, meetings. But you realized that no, he he actually had become biased in the other direction, and it was no longer balanced. And it's he and he was the one who really got the whole thing started to begin with. So he was kind of it was difficult to push against him, I would think. But eventually, uh, there was a rift that was irreparable. It was a very hard period because John and John is is and was a brilliant uh, staffer. This project would never have gotten off the ground or gone as far as it did without his his energy and courage and, and knowledge. He was fluent in, in Spanish and had a, a vast network of contacts uh, that he used. And he, uh, in, the, in the course of running several of these delegations, during the, uh, the dozen years that we were doing this program, we took 30 members of Congress from uh, senators and, and members of Congress uh, of, of the House, both parties, people that went on in Congress to play very important roles in the eventual resolution of the, the wars in in the region. But in the course of this, he, he was so successful in penetrating high levels of very thoughtful people in the government, he began to identify with the Washington folks and began to be, I thought, just, you know, say, inordinately persuaded by the State Department way of thinking uh, by virtue of spending so much time in those circles. And so he began to be, especially around Nicaragua, quite anti-Sandinista. It was the time of the, of the Contra War, you know, Oliver North and, and the missiles for the Contras and, and all, all of the intrigues that was going on there as, as Reagan found ways to actually violate the, the congressional strictures and, and to send support to the Contras. Some of our um, itineraries for the for the congressional delegations began to to be tilted in a way that I thought was becoming very anti Sandinista and very pro pro Contra. Yeah. And and then when you called him on it, he wound up going after you. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> trying to get the board to fire you, but it turned out that you had overwhelming support in the end. That's right. It was a very, very stressful time. I think, as I said in the book, he was a genius at understanding international and national politics, but he really missed the ball in trying to in understanding the politics of the organization. The board was not just not ready to follow in that direction. So as with the previous topic, I wanted to get your thoughts on what you see happening now, just briefly, because we're, we're going to run out of time very soon. Uh, it seems like in both issues, there's so much doesn't change, even as things change. I was wondering if it, if it makes you wonder about the value of the work. I mean, it seems that the value of the work can either be cast in terms of results or it can be cast in terms of the effort and the importance of trying. Uh, and you never know when what will bear fruit and when. I mean, things can bear fruit in a delayed fashion, too. Right. Uh, I think about this a lot um, in the case of the moratorium uh, on prison construction. Uh, we were clearly swimming against the tide that was uh, about to sweep over the nation in this move to incarcerate millions. But I think we, we planted a lot of seeds, a 
lot of the people who we worked with in that time are still in the trenches. They're, they're in the Department of um, Justice and they're in various uh, important lobbying organizations uh, on, on Capitol Hill. And I think the, the movement in the judiciary uh, came in part from the work that we did uh, in those years. And it was keeping the flame alive. I think uh, just that that is, is an important thing and part of the role of organizations like UUSC. In, in Central America, I think we made a significant contribution to the ultimate political solution of the wars of, 19, of the 1980s. I've had that at least confirmed by, by people uh, in, in Washington and people in El Salvador, that they feel that, that those delegations were essential in, in changing the congressional mood. Right. So before we end, I just want to say a couple of more things uh, about you, if you don't mind. One is in terms of your tirelessness. I mean, I think after 15 years, they finally convinced you to take a vacation. <laughs> and you, what vacation did you take? You went down to Central America, you know, to meet with the common folk. And, and the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, in your book, you talk about being diagnosed with cancer and you were in cancer treatment for lymphoma for the last five years of your tenure, which is amazing that you can, were able to continue. And finally, I want to uh, quote uh, something from your book that uh, Neil Shadle spoke at the Med Medville Lombard Theological School in Chicago, where you were getting an honorary doctorate, and he described you this way. Scottish by heritage, Presbyterian by birth, now for many years a Unitarian Universalist, you have been an unflinching, fiercely independent advocate for human rights, professionally bold, self-sacrificing, open to risk, unafraid of criticism, imaginative in experiments for social ameliorization, as flexible and cooperative in your institutional leadership as is compatible with sound principle, markedly modest about blowing your bagpipes. <laughs> and th that last comment is because, in fact, you do play the bagpipes. I do indeed. So <laughs> and uh, the very last thing I want to say is that in your, we're not going to have time to go over this in any detail, but you had sort of parting words in 1998 the principles of leadership. And one of them, which was I really was struck by, is the idea that social justice work should be filled with joy, not despair, but joy. And I think that probably is what carried you through all those years of, of leadership. Well, thank you. So Dick Scobie, the executive director of the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee from 1972 to 1998, it's been a pleasure having you and an honor to have you on Delving In. It's been a great, great time talking with you. Enjoyed it. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.